Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Had some time to think about it over the weekend. Ultimately, I didn't really think about it over the weekend, but I did have time to had I wanted to. And instead, I uh, pretty much thought about it this morning, which you guys can all give me that. It's the off season after all, so I'll try to take the weekends to think about something besides upcoming schedule for fantasy basketball podcast. But after thinking about it this morning, for about, oh, I don't know, 10 minutes? That seems reasonable, right? I've decided that I'm going to run behind the guys over on the Fantasy Pass side. Uh, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. I guess if you listen to the Friday show, you might remember this discussion. But what's happening right now is we're working our way through team reviews here on the podcast. And the amazing writers over at Sports Ethos are working through the same, not the same, but similar theme, also doing team reviews. Theirs are more in-depth than mine. I actually provide numbers to back up claims. I'm just over here yelling about stuff. But they are dropping stuff on the weekends as well. They've got uh, seven days a week of these team review shows, whereas I'm only doing five shows a week. There's no chance I'm doing seven days a week in the off season. I did it leading up to opening night this last season. I thought it'd be kind of a nice bonus as we felt like we were coming out of the pandemic and then slapped across the face with that one. Probably not going to do that again, by the way. I have a lot of shows leading up to the season. There's a lot of content to put out there, so maybe I won't take it off the table, but I'm certainly not doing it now. This is a time of year where most of you don't even really care that much about basketball anyway. Those of you that are listening are the true insanos, and I love you for it, but you're crazy people. Uh, anyway... The uh, the point I'm trying to make here is rather than skip over two teams and then come back, which was the alternative, meaning like I would stay right on pace with the Fantasy Pass articles, even though they did two shows over the weekend, I would sync up with them here on Monday. I'm going to run behind. It doesn't make sense for me to jump over two teams every every seven days, every five days, and jump two teams, and then come back and do it at the end when I don't know what they're going to be working on. Probably NBA draft stuff would be the next thing for the uh, the Fantasy Pass subscribers, which, by the way, you guys should still have that. It's really good in the offseason. There's really cool stuff in there. So, to that end, welcome to the show, everybody. It's Fantasy NBA Today. I'm Dan Bespris. Thank you again to everybody that continues to listen here during the offseason. We are way out in front of any other off-season month when there's really nothing going on. Like, forget free agency. Last year, free agency was in August, and then September ramp-up and October ramp-up. I'm throwing those out. We're talking about just the months where it's NBA playoffs. We're way out in front. Actually, as of yesterday, we passed, so that would have been the 22nd of May, we passed the off-season playoff months from last year, which was June and July. Passed him with a week to go. So we're going to be blitzing past last season probably by 30 or 40% in these months. So thank you all for continuing to listen here. It does really mean a lot to me. And it's the thing, frankly, it's the thing that keeps me going. If I see growth every year on the podcast, then I just feel really good about doing it the next year. 
But we have two things to talk about today. We got the NBA playoffs to kind of recap a little bit. We had three days worth of games because they're going every other day uh, over the weekend. Thank goodness the NBA has finally figured this part out. Don't leave an open day. That's dumb. They did it in the last round. They're not doing it in this one. Thank goodness. But over the weekend, Golden State won twice. They won the second game at home in a big comeback. That was a painful one. It did go over, by the way. Remember, we figured one of those was going over in that series. Uh, and it was the one on Friday went flying way over the total. And then the Warriors came back and beat the Mavs on the road yesterday in a game that went under the total, although we didn't really have a chance to talk about it. Meanwhile, on Saturday, Miami got out to a huge lead. Jimmy Butler left. Tyler Hero left that ballgame. Marcus Smart left and came back. Jason Tatum left and came back. The Time Lord is out with knee soreness. And, I mean, they're just, like, battered and bruised. And that ballgame went over again. Again. Although, you know, despite the fact that Boston had 23 turnovers... It was a very low-scoring fourth quarter, and then Boston went into foul mode late. That game was actually at 190 with about two minutes to go, and I think there were like 20 points scored in the last two minutes because it was foul, bucket, foul, bucket, foul, bucket. Nobody stopped anyone, and they just went back and forth like that, and Boston never really got closer than about five or six points down the stretch after trailing by 26, I believe, was the number earlier in the ballgame. What's notable is, first of all, uh, that series is happening again tonight. So that's the one we're going to be talking about here momentarily. What's also notable is that Miami got out to that crazy hot start and then hanging on the rest of the way. Jalen Brown had a really nice ball game. Playoff Al Horford is in full effect right now. But Boston's 23 turnovers to Miami's eight made all the difference. Celtics got to the foul line more, yes, but a 92-70 to field goal attempt advantage is just absurd. And I don't think we see that happen again in Game 4. I, I, this series has been, at least on the side, a, a, just a shimmering example of how the zigzag theory does still have some legs on it. Not often. But you need overreactions in every ballgame. First game, everybody overreacted before that game to Boston beating Milwaukee, and they were exhausted, so Miami won it. Second game, everybody overreacted to Boston losing the opener. Oh, Miami's really good. We forgot. Boston's terrible. We saw the third quarter. They're not going to be able to. Boston just swarmed them. And then we overreacted to that one. Boston beat Miami by 25 on the road. Clearly, they're not going to lose another game the rest of the way. And then Miami won on the road. And now it's, can Boston ever figure out the turnover thing? If you're wondering, Boston was favored by six in that last ball game. They're favored by seven in this one. And it might be the Tyler Hero thing. But at the same time, it's basically odds makers saying, we thought we had the number right, and we're not going to screw with it because we're getting the money coming in the way we want it. Boston's going to be coming back in this ball game. There's going to be extra money, presumably, on the Celtics because there's an expectation not going to lose both games at home, and it probably wipes a little bit of the value, if there is any, off of the side. Like, I don't think Miami's going to rest on their laurels here, but I do think Boston is going to have a better game plan offensively to deal with the turnover stuff. They just have to be cleaner. Boston by seven is a huge number to try to conquer. And a total of 206.5, every single game 
in this series so far has gone over. I figured the first one would because of tired legs and no defense. And then the second one, Boston just went nuts. 23-pointers and all those free throws. And the, and the pace was like around 210, 215. So it actually was paced out to go over. And the pace on the last ball game was actually paced out to go over. Miami had about 107 possessions. Boston had about 108. I don't see a thing yet that's making me change... I thought game two would go under. Once that one missed, figured Boston was going to cover and it was going to go under. So we went 50-50 on that one. Uh, or I don't even think I... Did we talk about game three? We didn't talk much about it. I think I figured there was a point at which something was going under. I mean, really, like... We're getting a whole lot of propped-up number value. At some point... Defense is going to happen on both sides. And the game's going to slow down a little bit. And is it now because Tyler Hero's out? But, you know, he missed half of the last ball game. Miami just got off to that crazy start. And there was sort of no stopping them from hitting what they needed to on the total side. I do have to lean to the under again. I, I think we're kind of in the market for one at this point. But... The pace of the games hasn't dictated it yet. We need a bad shooting night to get there. So from a speed perspective, it's not a good play. From a will the series slow down standpoint, yeah, it might be. You know, we might be creating an under bubble here. But I think forcing an under bet is kind of getting out in front of our skis a tad. Getting out on top of them. Boston favored by seven. As I mentioned, I'm probably leaving that side alone. That's a very large number to cover. Uh, they're going to play better. No mistake about that, but we might finally get... I guess that last ball game did get close with about five minutes left, and then Max Struess hit a couple of big shots, and Miami held them off. We're going to get a good ball game here. Coming up at some point. It's happening. I can feel it. By the way, uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at Dan Bespris. I don't think there's anybody new here listening in the offseason, but should you find yourself sort of fumbling around with... Uh, basketball withdrawals and thinking I want to hear about fantasy and betting even though it's the playoffs. Hey, hi, welcome. This is also a Sports Ethos presentation at sportsethos.com. Shout out once again to our buddies over on the baseball and football side. I love how hard those guys are working. I truly can't, man, shout out to both of those dudes, Joe and JP. They are busting their humps to try to get you guys content. For football, we're still a couple months out, but it's there. So please do follow at Ethos Fantasy FB for football and BB for baseball. Ethos Fantasy BB, Ethos Fantasy FB. I'll blow you a kiss. I'm going to keep yelling at you until you do it too. So might as well do it sooner. Detroit Pistons, the team du jour. Such fun. I know you guys are really excited about this one. Detroit didn't have a whole lot of fantasy value this year, but there was some. It wasn't an overwhelming team. I think the ones that we get excited about are the teams that have some top 50 guys, and there are some teams where there are a few of those. But compared to a couple of the clubs we've talked about already, Detroit was a relative goldmine. Sadiq Bey played in all 82 games this year, and he was number 96 on a per-game basis. So by totals... 
He actually ended up as a really strong head-to-head play, number 58. By totals, he was the only Piston inside the top 120. Cade Cunningham was 121. He played 64 out of 82 games at a top 90 clip. Luckily for Cade, everybody missed 15 games this year, so he was only like three games back of the league average in games missed. So it didn't hurt him that much, but it did hurt him a little. Because you move a lot of slots in that 75 to 150 range just from one or two games. He plays an extra two or three games. He jumps from 120 to 90. And that's how far you go there by totals. But we should concern ourselves more with per-game stuff and also with what the future might hold for a team like the Pistons. For one, we know they're building around Cade Cunningham. There's no question. He's pretty much the only guy on contract through the next two years. It'll be longer than that. They've got him next year, a couple of team options, and then a restricted or, yeah, he'd be a restricted free agent in like 2025 or something like that. But when you look at next year, first of all, Blake Griffin's money finally comes off the books. They had to buy him out, and he ended up in, in Brooklyn. We saw that. That was some time ago, but they were still on the hook for some of it. Detroit's payroll is very low for this coming season, and it's barely in existence for the year after that. Their current payroll for this coming year, which, by the way, does not yet include whatever they're going to do with Marvin Bagley, Corey Joseph's player option, and a couple of team options on guys like Hamadou Diallo and Frank Jackson and Luca Garza, it's currently at $76 million. That's really low. Jeremy Grant is set to make 21. He, by the way, expiring contract. Kelly Olynyk, 13 mil, not an expiring contract. Still the deal that makes the least amount of sense to me for a guy that they didn't really end up wanting to play. They gave him three years. Why didn't you, anyway, yell too much about it, but that's what got me fooled going into this last season. I figured, all right, they're going to give him three years. They're not just going to sit on him. What the hell's the point of that? If you want to do that, give him one or two years. Then, you, you know, you sit on him for one, but then you turn him into a tradable asset in the second year of his contract. Now you're trying to turn him into a tradable asset in the second of three years? I don't get it. I'm not going to be suckered in again, though. Marvin Bagley, presumably they'll try to bring him back. I think he's a restricted free agent right now, if I'm reading my numbers right. Um, Killian Hayes, he's on contract. Diallo... At 5 mil, I'm sure they'll exercise a team option there. Isaiah Stewart, they've got him. Frank Jackson, uh, team option. Dwayne Dedman is signed for basically 3 mil a year for eternity. And then Sadiq Bey is on contract as well. So when you look at this team, the first thing I look at is, is the coming season going to be a winning effort? And my guess is that the answer is still no. It's, a, it's an educated guess, but it's a guess. Do, uh, team won 23 games last year. Maybe, you know, there's a chance they could make a splash, try to bring in some free agents that actually lift them up a little bit. But the 10 seed in the East this year, the Hornets, still had 43 wins. There was more depth in the Eastern Conference this year than the Western Conference. West was a bit more top-heavy. Top seven teams in the West were very, very good. But then there was a drop-off to the Pels, the Clippers, the Spurs, the Lakers, things like that. In the East, you know, you could argue that like one through five, four, 
at least all had legitimate get-out-of-the-East chance, and then the Raptors, Bulls, Nets, Hawks, Cavs, Hornets were all kind of in like a second tier. In the West, it was like, okay, Suns, Warriors were probably your top guys. Mavs upset the Suns. They were with the Grizzlies and the Jazz in the next tier. And then the Nuggets and the Wolves were kind of in their own tier. And then the Pels, the Clippers, the Spurs, the Lakers, those were all in another tier. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The point I'm getting at here is that Detroit isn't ready to make the big flying 20-game leap forward. Sure, they might try to win some games early in the season next year, but Jeremy Grant is going to be hard on the block. If Corey Joseph exercises his player option to come back, he'll be on the block. I don't know what the hell the deal is with Marvin Bagley. Kelly Olynyk will be on the block, but moving a guy with another year on his contract is, is not as easy and probably something that we should have considered leading up to the trade deadline this year. How do you move a guy who's in the first of a three-year deal? Somebody really needs to want that player. And similarly, although not quite as severe, in with two years. But just from the Jeremy Grant perspective, if he's the guy, he and, and Cade, really, are the guys that you're expecting to get your team into position to maybe win some ball games, and Jeremy Grant's in the last year of his deal, don't you think it makes more sense for Detroit to move him, try to get a first-rounder, something like that coming back. I don't know, maybe you get a young player. I doubt it. Go for picks. And then, in 2023, that's when you start to say, all right, it's attack mode time. We'll have Cade in his third season. We'll have whoever they get this year in their second season. Killian Hayes will be in, I guess that would be, what, his fourth year by that point? Isaiah Stewart, that'll be his fourth year. Kelly Olynyk will be an expiring, so either they trade him or or he's part of a, a push to actually get towards the playoffs. I just, I don't, and even if they don't do it, I don't, I don't even really care about 2023. You're just going to probably have to sell a guy like Cade Cunningham. Hey, we're going to be, give us one more year of poop in the bed here, and then in 2023, that's when we'll make a push. We'll have all this money open, you know, they only would have something like $40, $45 million on the books if they exercised every team option they could. So tons of cap space. Go get some veterans. Even if you don't get a star, you get some veterans put around your, your two or three prized youngsters, and then you make a push at it. But even if that's not what actually happens, even if that's just the sales pitch to Cade to make his first few years in the NBA not so horrible... I don't see any planet where the Pistons are a... I'm sure they'll compete on a night-to-night basis. They're always playing hard. But they're not a competitive basketball team, and they won't be this coming year either. So whatever you do with this club, you kind of have to do with the understanding, like with Oklahoma City, that shutdowns are a real possibility. And Cade playing mid-60s in games again is a real possibility. And Jeremy Grant getting traded partway through the year after, you know, 30 games as the primary top 60 option on Detroit to a team where he's the third scoring option, that's a very real possibility too. Detroit is an unbelievably risky team to draft players on next year. I don't know who they're going to get in the draft. We can assess that when it happens. 
Cade as a top 90 guy, do we think that this coming year he's going to try to prove to the NBA that he can play in 80 games? I don't think there's any massive need for that. He might be a guy that plays in a bunch of games right at the beginning of the year and ends up as a sell-high opportunity. Why is Sadiq Bey playing all 82 games this year? I guess it's just something he's a personal goal. He was like, look, I want to play in every game. And when he wasn't badly banged up, they were like, fine. Like, we're going to lose whether or not you play, so go ahead. We can't play Kate every game because we'll accidentally win three or four more and then our odds won't be as good. We can't play Jeremy Grant more because then we'll accidentally win a, a few more games. Like a, an actual number you can hold in your hand. I don't know why that would change next year down the stretch. You might see some pre-tanking. They're going to want to keep Jeremy Grant healthy for trade bait. If he gets hurt, that's terrible for Detroit because they'll probably be able to get a first out of somebody for Jeremy Grant. He's good enough. Should be. I don't know what the market's going to look like. Will Isaiah Stewart take the step forward we were all hoping he would take this year? I can't count on that. Jeremy Grant will probably be overdrafted because he scores 19 points a game. I still like him. I mean, if he falls into the 90-100 range, I would probably do it. Cade will almost definitely be overdrafted because he is an extremely exciting basketball player, and if his field goal percent comes up, then when he's on the floor, he's going to be pretty damn good. You know, he's at 17, 5.5, and 5.5 and and with two threes, 1.9 defensive stats, good free throw numbers. All we need to do is fix the field goal percent, and he rocket boosts from top 90 to top 60 or top 50. That's the easy path there, and with any additional usage, he could go even higher. So there's a really good ceiling for Cade in his second year. Durability isn't necessarily part of that equation. So in a really weird twist, for a young player, I'd probably prefer him in a games cap format, because then you at least peel back a little bit of the shutdown fear. Or in head-to-head, yeah, maybe he plays. Like, I'm not saying it's a guarantee he gets shut down. What I am saying is that Detroit is not going to be a playoff team, so there's a distinct fear that they start pulling the plug on dudes. There's also the the opposite that could happen, where let's say Jeremy Grant gets moved midseason, and let's say Corey Joseph comes back and then gets moved midseason, and all of a sudden Detroit's like, ah, whatever, let him play. And then it's Killian Hayes going 35 minutes and Cade 35 minutes and Bay 35 minutes. It's like, oh, great. And at least two of these three guys are probably going to be inside the top 100 at that point. Which is why I think the upside is probably worth the gamble on the Roto side, depending on where Cade gets drafted. Because he's in that top 90 range. I don't think he falls that far this coming year. He's too exciting. Based on initial projections here and a lot can change Detroit could have some moves this offseason somebody get traded away somebody comes in whatever my initial look is that I would expect Cade to bounce up from number 86 in nine cat to probably something more in between 50 and 70 bring the turnovers down from 3.7 to like 3.2 get the field goal percent up from 41.6 to 43 That's it. That's all that would take. Anything over that, potential gravy. Now, yes, maybe he plays 64 games again, but throw that in the mix as if you could draft him at 75, then perhaps because of that combination, 
a lack of durability, possibly. Not saying he's not a durable player. I'm saying that the team doesn't really need him to be one yet. Combined with probably beating his ADP on the per-game side makes him a possibility. And then, interestingly, Sadiq Bey is probably a, a guy you look at on the other side of the equation. I think that he now, because he played in All-82 this year, I think that's now become a thing. So when something becomes a thing, then you can take advantage of it. Where it's sort of this, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. He didn't necessarily come into the year saying, I want to make sure I play in every ball game. But he got going, didn't get hurt for a while. Team was losing even when he was playing games. And he thought, all right, screw it. Like, I'll just play them all. Coach, I want to play them all. I want to show the league that I can handle the NBA grind. Great. He's played 152 out of 154 games in his two-year career. I would venture to say that to this point, and that's what we can handicap on, he's been a really durable basketball player. He can jump a bit too, so that does make him uh, a tad vulnerable. But here's the problem. The one place, I don't think he's playing more minutes next year. I don't think he's taking more shots next year. He had some games where he was getting a crap ton of looks when Cade was out, when Grant was out, whatever. And that's what we're talking about. That's a possibility towards the end of next year again, but you don't want to bank on it. So his counting stats... I don't know that those change much year over year. 16, five and a half, three assists, a steal, basically. And two to two and a half, probably two and a half, three pointers. What we are hoping for with Sadiq Bey is better shot selection. So improve the field goal percent from under 40, 39.6. He was at 40.4 his rookie year. I've got to think that if everything else holds and he takes about 14 shots again next year, just the general improvement in his own basketball game will get that field goal percent up a little bit, even if it's only to like 41%. But 41 as opposed to 39.5, it takes away the single largest negative impact item on his ledger, and it makes it still a negative impact item, but not quite as prolific so the ankle weight that's holding him down, you just lighten it up a little bit. And he goes from top 95 to 100 range to top 80, top 85. Like every percentage point his field goal percent improves, he probably goes up by about five or six slots in that range of the rank board. Once you get to like 44% and he's closer to top 75 guy, then it'll take a little more to move him up the board. But I mean, that's where you could look at with him. And on the head-to-head side, that's probably worth the gamble. On the Roto side, I don't know. Because you guys know how much I hate, 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 hate stockpiling in any respect guys who crush percentages in Roto. It, crush them in a bad way, I guess I should say. If you have players on your team, winning percentages is so easy in Roto because nobody pays attention to it. All you have to do is not take someone like Sadiq Bey during your draft. Because what is he actually doing that helps you so much? There's no one category where you're like, oh, this guy, you know, big deal. Threes at 2.63 pointers per game. That's pretty good. That's his biggest positive impact category. But you don't need players like that on your fantasy team. Really weird thing for me to talk about when I'm also so staunchly pro Rudy Gobert, but I mean, that's just because 
he gets violently underrated in drafts year after year after year. Uh, and even then, you still have to sort of budget a couple of free throw shooters against it. In general, I would say avoid guys like that. And Gobert, too. Sorry, Rudy. You know I love you, and, and you'll probably be a value at the end of the second round again this coming year. But avoid guys like that. And especially the ones that don't lift you up that much in other categories. And you can basically win percentages in Roto. You can have, I would say, 12-team league, obviously 24 being the most points you could get out of the two. You could pretty easily get to 19 or 20 points in the percentages combined by simply not taking a punt guy in either one of them. And Sadiq Bey was kind of a punt guy on the field goal percent side. He was one of the worst in the NBA in terms of his impact. It did get better as the year went on. Remember, there was a stretch where he was the worst in the entire league, and then he had like a month and a half stretch where he wasn't as awful, and he, and he pulled himself out of that bottom-most bucket. Uh, but... <laughs> It, uh, he's still down there in the bottom 10. Dodge those guys, and you can rack up 20 Roto points in the percentages. But on the head-to-head side, since everything's so much week-to-week dependent, it's uh, it's actually pretty easy. You can take a guy like that and just, you know, you get him on a bad week, oh no, but maybe one of your other guys is having a really good week, and it tends to balance out a little bit. You're not doing a full punt at that point, unless you have a couple guys like that. Whereas with Roto, that dude weighing you down all season long, that's a hard thing to come back from, especially when he's the guy playing all 82 games. So, we loop back around. Am I touching any of these other dudes? Nah. Nah. There's some upside there with Killian Hayes. If he plays starters minutes all season long, steals, assists, some rebounds, things like that, but I don't think you need to draft him. I'm not drafting Kelly Olenek again. If he comes out of the woodwork and plays more minutes, great. I'll take a look at him then. I'm not drafting Isaiah Stewart, even though he's he's kind of profiles as a little bit of a post-type guy. But I can't bring myself to do it. He was a little better down the stretch. We can give him that much. He was like top 120 over the last few weeks of the season. So that was something. And Killian Hayes was in that top 120 range over the last couple weeks as well, once Corey Joseph mostly went into shutdown mode. And Jeremy Grant wasn't playing, so there was just more stuff. Cade was top 75 in that stretch. He shot 46% there. That's what we talked about. That's all it takes. Sadiq Bey was top 85. He shot 40.5% in that stretch. That's all it takes. A percentage point here, a percentage point there, and boom, they just take off through the roof. Not drafting Marvin Bagley either. So you're looking at Jeremy Grant, if you want to try to squeeze stuff out of him before a possible trade, most likely. Not head-to-head. Cade, more so on the Roto side as well, but there is some upside depending on when he gets drafted. And then Sadiq Bey, a bit more on the head-to-head side, as again, you you lean into the fact that he's probably going to play most of his games and frankly, anybody in the top 100 that plays in all 82 games is a really nice head-to-head grab. Tomorrow, I guess I'd have to look and see who has the next worst record. Did we do the Thunder first? Why'd we do that? 
I did it. Oh, I know why I did it. I did it because the Fantasy Pass guys were doing it. They went backwards in that one, though. Uh, next worst record tomorrow is the Pacers. We did, yeah. We've done four of these things? Yeah. All right, fifth worst record, Indiana. Ooh, a lot of question marks on that team. That'll be a fun one. They lost They lost their last, however many games? They lose their last 10 or 11 games of the year? Yeesh. And they may have an off-season trade in the works. We shall see. I am Dan Vespers. Thanks again, everybody. Hey, uh, off-season show 31. Almost forgot to, to date stamp it. May 23rd, up into the 30s. We're actually technically under five months from the start of the NBA season now. So that's cool. And we're only like three and a half months from getting into kind of draft time. It's flying. Is it? It might be. Hey, again, fantasy, ethos, fantasy, FB, ethos, fantasy, BB, ethos, fantasy, BK. Please do make sure you're following all three of those. I am at Dan Vespers. Enjoy your Monday. Enjoy heat. Uh, Celtics this eve. We'll pivot back to the other one tomorrow. And we'll talk Miles Turner. <laughs> So long, everybody. Thank you.